welcome to a very special evening. We are titling these events, and these are some of my favorite events around here. Um, we're titling this a Step Into the Story event, and I am in a rush to introduce to you all our guest speaker tonight, uh, David Tall, who, as you may have heard, was a longtime friend of the ministries, and, and we're going to get to hear a little bit of his story uh, tonight, and he's going to share powerfully from God's Word. So will you join me in welcoming Mr. David Tall to the stage? And by the way, I should mention that David here is here tonight, not by himself, but he is joined by his brand new bride. Christy, would you please stand and let's honor Christy. You guys got married how long ago? A month and three days. You got to get that right. You know the exact day. I like that. I was looking out there to make sure I didn't make a mistake. That might have been the most stressful moment of this entire evening. A month and three days, I like that. I mean, I've seen Syrian tanks before on the other side. I mean, <laughs> this was scary. So we'll get to that. I'm just going to stay up here for a minute. I promise you I'm going to go sit down. But I want to just see if I can pull out a bit of your story. Now, you are... Now, this is going to get a lot of love from this crowd. You're actually a native San Diegan. Well, I'm a Navy brat. Amen. Born in San Diego. Tell us, tell us how your story got started and how you made your way to Israel. Just start there. Uh, Two dysfunctional families, one from Colorado and one from Baltimore, and both ran away from home and ended up in San Diego, literally. Uh, dad served uh, on aircraft carriers and later on in Miramar, okay, and um, was a Jew, Arthur Goldberg, and had an experience with God. Uh, somebody gave him a Bible, and my dad said, you know, I'm a Jew, I can't read a Bible. Uh, this New Testament is all about Jesus guy. And somebody said to him, wait a minute, wait a minute. This book was written by Jews for Jews. And he read the New Testament, was saved in the hospital. But, um, yes. I mean, we do need a round of applause for that one. Amen. So God did a powerful work. And then at four years old, you, your, your parents made Aliyah. You guys moved to Israel. Well, we moved to Israel first as students. Okay. Well, they were students. I was peewee. Okay. But uh, then uh, they lived in Israel for a couple of years, and they decided that they wanted to be part of the story. So we came back, uh, spent two years in the States for a while. And from 1971, I'm Israeli-born, or Israeli-raised and fed. Okay, okay. So you, you're essentially a PK. We have that in common. Uh, Dad um, was a pastor of a Messianic congregation there. And, and yeah. in, in a couple of words, Messianics are Jews who believe that you don't have to quit being a Jew in order to be a follower of Amen. Jesus. Amen. That's really important. So uh, there was a small Messianic congregation coming together in Israel at the time. I grew up as the son of the pastor, or one of the pastors, and one of the elders of this Messianic congregation. So yeah, I'm a PK, with everything that that means, you know. Okay, but... All right, now, now fast forward a little bit. You had a season where you wandered away. Tell us about that. And then, and then you had kind of a dramatic Saul of Tarsus experience, and I just, I want to get wow. to that. I'm so excited. Will you please share with us your conversion story? Um, yeah, I'm the PK that walked away. And I guess most families, most Christian families, have somebody who couldn't hold it together. I was 17, 18. The first Lebanese war uh, finalized my loss of faith. And uh, I walked away, um, broke my parents' heart. Never became an atheist, but was agnostic for many years and um, for a long time. And when I mean a long time, I'm talking about a generation, or in biblical terms, 40 years, almost 40 years. Um, my, wife, my life went up, my down. I didn't fall apart. You know, everybody thinks that the PK walks away is going to end up in drug rehabilitation. And none of that happened. Went into the military, did my military service, I did government service, and became a normal person, but never really connected until. My world fell apart. My sons broke my heart. 
my marriage fell apart and everything was falling apart and in uh, an amazing way uh, when God needs to talk to somebody he decides when and where that happens now I live in Israel I live literally 20 minutes outside of Jerusalem I'm a tour uh, guide in, in Israel and I've watched people come to Israel for years for their spiritual experience which is probably why my spiritual experience happened in California <laughs> And um, for me personally, I remember, I remember when I was young, I used to say to my dad, if, if God ever reached out and touched me, said something to me, you know, I wouldn't be agnostic anymore. I, I, I'd know. And, and I said, but I can't do it out of the air. And I was sitting on the beach in Seal Beach, California. And... Uh, it was raining a little bit, and I was crying a little bit, and I was in despair a lot, and uh, couldn't figure out what to do and what I'd done wrong. My, my, everything that I planned and everything I tried to do was not really working. And for the first time in my life, I heard God audibly in the world, not in my heart, not in my mind. And... Um, God said, first thing God said to me is shachrir. And the first thing I'm thinking is, why is God speaking Hebrew in California? <laughs> uh, shachrir means let go. Set free. And I realize that he's talking about me and my son. Second thing God says to me is, hu lo shelcha, hu sheli. Um... He's not yours. He's mine. And I handed my son and my life over to God that day on Seal Beach, California, just south of the pier. So if you ever walk down to Seal Beach Pier, go a little bit to the south, look out to the sea. And that's where God changed my life forever. Amen. Amen. Let's put our hands together for that story. That's powerful. And that was a couple of years ago, right? That was a couple of years ago, but like everything else, I had to make it complicated. It had to be a balagan. <laughs> See, everybody who laughed just now has been on a tour with me. Okay, everything, everybody who did not laugh just now, balagan means mix up, mess up, you know, the way your politics are going right now in the States. That's a balagan. <laughs> um, but it took me a while to reconnect and rebuild and, and, and pull it all together. And uh, the next stage in my, my story is, you know, a lot of people have this light bulb moment or, uh, you know, the altar call and everything. It didn't really happen to me like that. I realize there's a God, but I don't really know what that means. I don't know how that works. I don't understand sin. I don't understand. So I had to work through all of that. Um, people ask me, when were you saved? I wouldn't say, okay, I realized God was there. I wasn't sure I was saved, but my event was much more like a sunrise than it was like a light bulb moment. It was dark, it was dark, and then slowly you see the haze and slowly you start picking out details. And, you know, about a couple of minutes later, all of a sudden you realize that you're seeing things that you've never seen before. That's and, and that's how it happened to me. Amen. And my dad, you were friends with my dad. Yeah. And so David is uh, a tour guide in Israel and led our tour just this last May. We had a wonderful time and became fast friends. But you, you were sharing with me in my office just a minute ago about how my dad would, would share the gospel with you. And oh, just tell uh, us a little bit about that. Me and Ray went into apologetics a couple of times. Okay. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting on the bus and I'm saying, I'm not sure. And, you know, you, you know Pastor Ray. I mean, it's all about bubbling, you know, and... and and, you know, we used to have these, these conversations. But one of the things that impressed me about your dad was that there was a steadfastness in him that I hadn't seen. Now, again, I'm a PK, I'm a tour guide. I mean, in The Wizard of Oz, I'm the one who lives behind the curtain. I don't just see behind the curtain. I live behind the curtain. Uh, and I've seen a lot of pastors and a lot of different buses. And, and you know, and, and it... it but there was a anchor there that I recognized. And I remember talking about, to your dad about, 
I need a spiritual anchor. And I was hoping that Ray Bentley would be my spiritual anchor. We'd been talking about it for a little while. Sadly, that's not happened, but I mean, are you up to the job? Amen. Absolutely. And you have a home here at, San at Maranatha Chapel. Well, I'm going to go sit down. But while we were on the tour, just to set this up, David, you know, you're driving around. And by the way, by a show of hands, how many of you have been to Israel? Just raise your hands. Look at all those hands. Praise the Lord. The rest of you, we're going in 2025. Signups are coming soon. <laughs> Save your pennies. Recycle cans. Sell a kidney. I don't know what you have to do. But get to Israel. We're all going to go there in the kingdom age. But we were on um, one of our bus drives. And David was sharing this story. And he was going into the history of the Jewish state. And just explaining God's hand and the prophetic and biblical significance of the nation of Israel. And God's promise to one man. And how that unfolded. And how that was revealed. And how that relates to us. And the promises that God has spoken to us. And I was like, David, you have to come share this with our church. And so here he is all the way from Israel to San Diego. Welcome home. Give it up one more time for David Tall. So you figured I have a California connection. Now I have a double California connection. Um, and we talked about Daniel's dad. Let me talk about my dad. Um, for years, he'd go to churches in, in the States and he'd speak. And, and one of the things that he would say is that if you want to see the fingers of God meddling in the affairs of men in the world today, the story that I'm going to tell you, the story of the rebirth of Israel, means that God has his finger on what's going on. And I'm going to add another layer to that because I need you to kind of understand this. Um, if you want to see that God is a faithful God that keeps his commitments and his promises through generation after generation against all odds. The story of God's relationship with his chosen people, okay, means that God keeps his promises even though nobody thought it would happen. And the main reason, I'm gonna tie this together at the end, is that if God had not kept his promises to his chosen people, you would not be able to be sure that he would keep his promises to you. But the fact that he has, against everything that we're going to talk about here today, okay, means that we can trust in God's promise. And I'm going to try to take that off the theological level and take it off the uh, history channel and the documentary channel and bring it down to ground because, again, like I said, uh, I'm a PK, I'm an Israeli, I'm an officer in the Israeli military, I'm a major in the IDF, that'll kind of connect to a couple of things, and I want to show you in geopolitical military terms how God keeps his promises. And I know it sounds weird to say it like that. But that's what we're going to be doing today. And that's the reason I called this the Promise Connection. Uh, I'm going to be going through slides, and there's going to be Bible verses. And again, it's going to be kind of quickly. Um, maybe one of the things I will ask is to leave the PowerPoint presentation on the church website so people can back up and, and see that as we go. But the Promise Connection is made to, let's see, this one, this one. Ah made to a God, to a little people called the Jews, the Israelis, the Israelites, the Hebrews, whatever you want to call, and we live on the other side of the world. And when I say the other side of the world, look how far away we are, okay? And I know um, everybody thinks that we're a very special people and a very special land, but look at that. We are actually situated in a tiny little corner in the middle of nowhere. You're looking at the Middle East, and we're in a corner of the Middle East. That's a tiny little sliver of land right over there. And when I say tiny, this is how tiny it is. Let me see that. We're connecting three major continents. And anybody who's been on a tour to me understands that there is a reason God put us here, because we are the connection, the promise connection. We are the connection between Africa, Asia, and Europe. And it's not by chance that God put us in one of the most, how do you say, strategic places in the world. 
We're surrounded by enemies. And let's do this quickly. Oh, let's go back one. What you're looking at in green are the Muslim <laughs> nations that surround my country. We have a very interesting saying that God put us in a very beautiful land. It's beautiful. We have beautiful beaches. We have beautiful mountains. We've got the Sea of Galilee, which is amazing. God gave us an amazing, beautiful country. He just put us in a really crummy neighborhood. <laughs> and look at that neighborhood. I mean, that's about as bad as you can get. And you know, it seems like we're big, and it seems like we're amazing. It seems like we're wonderful, OK? But it is a tiny little promised land. But it was promised to us. And God made a promise in Genesis 12. If you got a Bible, open it up. If you don't have a Bible, open it up. And I'm going to make a connection here. Let's start off with Genesis 12 before I go to 15. And I'm going to do something that most people like. I don't know if this kind of connects. And I'm going to read Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, and the language that it was written in. ויאמר אדוני אל אברהם, לך לך מארצך ומולדתך אל הארץ אשר אראך, ואעשה אותך לגוי גדול, ואברך אותך, ואגדיל שמך, ואברך את מברכיך, ואקלל את מקלליך, ונטבחו בך כל משפחות האדמה. God said to Abraham, go to the land that I will show you. And I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who curse you. And through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. That is the promise connection. He said, this is me. I'm God. This is the nation that I'm giving you. And these are the people that I have chosen. God makes a connection between people, land, and himself. And if God breaks that promise, you can't be sure that he's going to keep any of his promises. And what I'm going to show you today is how God has kept that promise in a physical way again and again and again. We call ourselves the chosen people. By the way, anybody know how many Jews in the world today? Throw a number. Somebody throw a number. 14 million, 15 million, eh, 16 million, if you kind of consider the ones who don't really know or don't really call themselves Jews anymore, okay? We're less than a major city in the United States, but we are the chosen people, and God decided that he will curse everybody that curses us and bless everybody who blesses us, and let's make this clear, a lot of people have cursed us a lot of times along the way. And let's talk a little bit about the people who did, because it wasn't easy. I need to make something clear here. Anybody who's been on the bus has heard the word balagan. Balagan is a beautiful word. It's actually originally in Persian. It means mix up, mess up, whatever, OK? Um, my government is a big balagan right now. I don't know if you know what's going on in Israel. And I thought we had a big balagan until I realized what's going on in your balagan. <laughs> I, I'm thinking about what's going to happen in the next elections. I mean, again, and, and again, it's not completely a joke because what happens in the American, in the United States of America from a political point of view impacts Israel much more, I think, than any other thing. So maybe that's another conversation for, for a different period. But just look at this. Canaanites, Philistines, Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Greek, Romans, these are the nations, the empires that had to teach us a lesson. Go back to the Old Testament. We can talk about Amalekites, Midianites. Uh, I mean, listen what we're going through. And, and being God's chosen people has always come at a price. At a price. It's always come at a place where, OK, we're not doing what God says. God teaches us a lesson. That's not the end of the story. OK? Um, over the years, all of this is coming. This is the Old Testament. Then Jesus comes and changes everything. And later on, we'll talk about the upgrade of the salvation system from a local hill on top 
uh, on top of Jerusalem to the rest of the world. But that's not the end of the story. God's people still have to go through the destruction of Jerusalem in 66 AD. Side note, in order for you to understand what I'm talking about. If you go back to the Old Testament, sacrifice is taking place in the temple on top of Mount Moriah in the middle of Jerusalem. Sacrifice is salvation. The Bible said, the Old Testament, without the shedding of blood, there's no redemption of sin. Without redemption of sin, you cannot come to God the Father. And there was a whole system in place of a sacrifice that was taking place on that temple. And in 71 AD, the Romans destroy the temple. Now, you and I both know that the solution to that sacrificial problem came a couple of years before that. God in his glory and his magnificent found a way to keep the promise. The mechanism was in place before that. But if you're Jewish in 71 AD, you see the temple is destroyed. And if you do not accept Jesus, as most of the Jews have not, you understand that as far as we're concerned, our salvation was taken away from us. Do you understand what I just now said? It is so profound and so deep that we had to deal with a loss of a connection to God. Now, Judaism changed. And the Judaism that you see today in the world is not the same Judaism as before this event. The Judaism today is not a Judaism of, of sacrifice and salvation the way it was before. It's a Judaism of prayer and good deeds. And, and maybe if I have time, we can go into that a little bit deeper. But you understand what happened here when the temple is destroyed. Everything changes. Uh, we rebelled against the Romans. The Romans destroyed the temple. Um, I'm going to say something that you're not allowed to say. If you say it, we'll call you anti-Semitic. I'm allowed to say it because I'm Jewish. Okay? Uh, or, or let's put it this way. You're allowed to say it because the Bible says it. We are stiff-necked people. And we don't do things according to the plan all the time. Um, I've been coming to terms with the new terminology because people have been asking me why and how this happens. And, and maybe one thing I want to plant in your minds before we go further is that we don't know. I don't really know why God chose us. I don't know. I mean, Jewish tradition says that when God went to the different nations all over the world, he says, do you want to be my people? And they said, okay, what are you going to do for us? Okay. I went to another nation. He said, do you want to make my people? And they said, okay, what... Uh, what, what uh, is going to happen if we do this, okay? What are you going to give us? And when he came to the Jesus people, Jewish people, our, our tradition says that we answered in two words, which means we will do, now tell us what we need. Meaning the Jewish people were chosen because they first of all said, yes, now let's get it all together. Uh, I don't think we really understood what was going on, but God chose us for some reason. But he didn't make it easy. And because God chose us, we play a role in, in the forefront of world affairs. And again, I got to be careful. I don't want to go on to the, all, all the deepness. And I don't want to sound too weird on this one. But um, we are God's chosen people. The Bible says it, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But I like to make this comparison, since we are talking about uh, PKs, is that we're God's family, for lack of a better word. We're God's PKs, if you want to call it that way. Or I like to call us GKs, okay? God's kids. And as GKs, we are in, how do you say, the front window of, of the department store. And, and everybody's looking at us. Anybody who's been a PK knows what I'm talking about. And everybody's checking us out. And the thing is that we're not special. We're not different. We're no less stiff-necked than anybody else. But we are still God's chosen. And because we're God's chosen, we're held up to a different standard, both by ourselves and by God's. And, and look, at, look at what we paid in return. We rebelled against the Romans the first time, but that didn't work, so we rebelled against the Romans the second time. The second time, the Romans did not only destroy Jerusalem, but they also decided to disassociate the Jews from Judea, the people from their land. One way to do that is to exile 
Most of my people, most of my people from this, from here on, spend exile, spend their time in exile all over the world. The second is to disassociate. Name things differently. You create a different dynamic. You create a different, <laughs> a different world. And what they decided to do is take the name Judea, take it away, and call the nation Palestina. I don't know if you know, but the name Palestine is a result of the Romans trying to disassociate the Jews from Judea. And from then on, the name of the nation was Palestine. But again, we've got crusades that conquered us. We've got Muslims that conquered us. We've got Mamluks that conquered us. And all of this time, we're sitting in the diaspora, in the exile, and we're praying that somehow, someway, God will remember his family, remember his kids, and bring us back where? to our ancestral homeland. Remember that term? Because if there ever was such a thing as a land where people become a people, and you know, we use the term ancestral homeland, it is the Jewish people in their homeland. That's the ancestral homeland of the Jewish people. And it came at a terrible price. But always, always, we remembered where we came from. We never forgot. Um, I got married in Seal Beach a month ago. And the last thing that you do in a Jewish wedding, under the chuppah, okay, uh, you break the glass. Anybody know why you break a glass in a Jewish wedding? There's two reasons. First of all, to remember that even on the most amazing day of your life, and it was an amazing day, okay, something has to be broken to remind us that the temple has been destroyed. That's how deeply ingrained it is. And the next thing that you say is, if I forget Jerusalem, I forget everything that I am. My right hand forgets, <coughs> excuse me, my right hand forgets what it knows how to do, and I become a different person. I am not allowed to forget Jerusalem and my connection to this land. So all of these years, my people have been looking at that tiny little sliver over there in the middle of the big mass world and saying, we have to come back. And let's talk about how we did that. <coughs> it's historical. It's spiritual, <clears throat> it's biblical, but at some point, <clears throat> sorry about this, let's see if I can pull this off. <clears throat> Hallelujah, wow. <clears throat> at some point it's gotta land on the ground, and this is how it lands on the ground, until World War I, we were part of different Arab uh, nations. We were part of the Ottoman Empire. I don't know if you ever heard of that. After the Ottoman Empire, <clears throat> the British conquered this area in World War I, and the seeds are planted to a fulfillment of God's prophecy. Um, check out born-again Christians who had a role in the rebirth of the state of Israel. Okay, it is a Christian movement. People in the British Empire decided that it's time for the Jews to return. The Balfour Declaration is something that's really interesting. Check out Lord Balfour, Ordwin Gate, other, other Christians that were part of this. And they said it's time for the Jews to return to their homeland. The British took control of what they called been in Palestine. <coughs> They handed part of Palestine over to the Jordanians. They created a nation called Jordan. And the sliver of land between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River, okay, stays in British mandate hands after 1921. So from 1921 to 1948, this is a British mandate. And in 1948, everything changes. World War II. World War II and Europe is up in flames. And one of the basic aspects, the key elements of the Nazi policy in World War II is the elimination of the Jewish problem. Okay? And in, in other words, the mass murder of a whole race. Somebody put that on the hearts of Nazi Germans. There's a lot of things that's connected to it. And they tried their best to wipe us off the planet. Jews who were trying to get away from what was going on in Europe made their way to their ancestral homeland, were literally turned back by the British. 
my father-in-law was a German Jew named Sigmund Brechneider, who managed to survive the Holocaust and then was turned back after World War II and spent two years in a British camp before he was allowed to come back to his homeland. And what I'm trying to say is unacceptable. So the British in 1947, and again, there's a reason for what I'm doing here. And we've been talking about this all day long, but there is a battle going on in the world between God and Satan. I mean, you would all agree with me, right, on that one? Okay, but in that battle, sometimes Satan can't attack God directly. So one of the things that Satan is going to do is attack things that are godly. A good example is Satan is attacking Christianity in your culture and your society and your environment today. Okay? Uh, it is attacking the concept of truth. That's a whole different story in the world that you're living in today. But one of the things that Satan is doing is attacking God's promise that God's connection between God's people and their land. And there's a growing movement inside the world today and a lot in America, and I'm sad to say even in churches in the United States where people have disassociated God's promise from the promised land. In that war of misinformation, the ammunition that we, the godly people, have in order to fight that battle is truth. And what I'm doing here tonight is giving you some of that truth information and enlisting you into the army of God fighting for Israel. I hope you're ready for this because it comes at a price. As you all know, okay, it's not always easy to walk the path, as I know, among other things. But you will now know the truth about the rebirth of the state of Israel and the truth that is historical fact. Even the most leftist of the progressive of the wokest of the leftist of the whatever you want to call them is, okay, okay, cannot dispute what is going to be on this right now. I need you to understand this. So you're being enlisted into our army. And in 1947, the British Empire, realizing that they have a problem, the Jews and the Arabs living in the land do not get along with each other. They send a committee to Israel and they say, tour the land and find out a solution. In 1947, the United Nations toured the land and came up with the Solomon solution. What's the Solomon solution? Cut the baby in two. It's called the Partition Plan of 1947. The blue areas are Israel, a Jewish. The dark brown areas are Arab. And you see the red area in the middle is going to be an international solution for the, state, for the city of Jerusalem. Everybody realize that Jerusalem is a hot spot. All three religions are connected there. Mount Moriah. Moriah means God's classroom or God's hill, or God's the teacher, okay? Mount Moriah is in the middle of that, and they all say, okay, we'll put Jerusalem in the middle, it'll be an international administrative city, and for the first time in 2,000 years, the United Nations representing all of the world said, let the Jews have a homeland. What did the Jews say? Thank you. Hallelujah. David Ben-Gurion says, it's small. It's not what we want. But thank you. For the first time, we have a place to bring our remnant. Now, don't remember, remember, we're not a big people. We're about 8 million people, 9 million people at the time. Okay, there's enough room here for 9 million people. Fine, let's do this. What did the Arabs say to the United Nations in 1947 when they partitioned the land and said, let's give the Arabs part of the land and the Jewish part of the land? What did they say? Three no's. No negotiation, no compromise, no peace. And the British realized that they're not going to solve the problem by petitioning their land. And in May of 1948, they play the bagpipes, they put on the skirts, pull down the Union Jack, and they sail off into the wild blue yonder, basically saying to the Jews, it's your problem. By the way, the Secretary of State came to the President of the United States and said it's going to be another Holocaust. 
We are six million people today, but back then we were probably about half a million, probably about six or seven hundred thousand people, Jewish people inside the area that we know as Israel today. And around us are all the nations that the minute the British left, declared war on Israel. Egypt from the south, Jordan from the east, uh, Saudi Arabia, just to make it interesting, okay? Syria from the northeast and Lebanon from the north all declared war on Israel. And again, we don't have a country. We don't have armor. We don't have planes. We don't have anything. Nothing that we have to fight a battle against all of these armies. And we thought we were going to be wiped out. We started buying up pieces and ornament from everywhere. We were talking today about a very interesting aspect. We started buying up everything that we could to defend the country. One of the things that we bought up was four Messerschmitts. I don't know if anybody knows, but that's as a German fighter that fought against the Allies in World War II. We bought up four Messerschmitts and we used them to stop the Arab advance from the south. That line that comes up through Gaza towards Tel Aviv was on its way to cut off Tel Aviv from the rest of the nation. And those four German fighters with the Star of David painted on the side of them is what stopped the Egyptian army. I mean, if that's not biblical, if that's not providence, if that's not God looking out for his people, I don't know what is. But they advanced up towards Jerusalem. They advanced up there. And again, they attacked. They were on the verge of wiping us out. I can go into all the different battles. I can talk to you about how and what. I can talk about uh, logistics. I can talk about in military terms about outflanking. I can talk about the fact that we did this here. We did that there. I can talk about sometimes our enemy did stupid stuff. I could talk about a, a pivotal battle on the road to Jerusalem that they lost because their commander was killed in the middle of the battle. And instead of finishing the battle, they turned around and, and went to have a funeral. And by the time they got back to fight the battle, we brought in reinforcements. Hallelujah. But some of the battles, I, I, I don't have a good explanation. A classic example would be uh, the battle for uh, the city of Tzafet in the north, the Galilee. You can see there's a thrust coming in from Lebanon into the Galilee. North of Nazareth was a pivotal kind of intersection. And we're fighting a battle in a mixed city. Part of it was Arab, part of it was, it was uh, Jewish. Uh, we're losing the battle, so we bring in our heavy artillery. Now, we didn't have any heavy artillery. We're welding pipes together and shooting them at the army. And we give them a nice name because we're Jewish. So it's called the Little David, or in Yiddish, the Davidka. It's cute, isn't it? I mean, OK. It's, it's hard for me to say cute about, you know, military stuff. But, okay, the little David, we're shooting it at the enemy, and it doesn't really do anything, but it makes a lot of noise. And this is 1948. Uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki had happened in 1945. Everybody knows that the Jewish are smart. Didn't you know that? Okay? And our enemies decide we're shooting atom bombs at them. And they drop their weapons and run away. Now, there should be a biblical chapter on that one. I mean, you know, that is a biblical story. But again, somehow, for some reason, we do manage not only to stop the advance, but we do manage to push back at our enemies. We push into the Galilee. We push back into Jerusalem. We manage to hold open the Jerusalem quarter. You see the Jerusalem quarter down there in the bottom? We do manage to push all the way down to Beersheba. And at the end of the war of 1948, I don't know why I get all emotional at this point. You see those black lines? There are the borders of the modern state of Israel at the end of the War of Independence of 1948. 2,000 years of exile. Persecution second to none. A holocaust that wiped out one-third of our population, worldwide population. A war that wiped out 1% of all of the population, meaning 1% of our people were killed in battle. Think about in American terms, think about a war where you lose 3 million soldiers. Okay, what would, I mean, those are killed, not counting the wounded. I mean, everything that we fought, and after 2,000 years, there is a nation, there's a flag, and there's a border. And ladies and gentlemen, I need a round of applause for the modern state of Israel in 1948. That is amazing. 
I had told you 100 years ago that we would be a nation, nobody would have believed. Uh, a guy named Samuel Clemens rides through the Jezreel Valley in, in 1860-something and, and actually rides through the Jezreel Valley and, and writes in a travel journal. That's very interesting. Get your hands on it. He says, land of milk and honey. Who in his right mind would call this the land of milk and honey? It's, it's, it's desert and, and bandits and, and malaria, as I think is what he said. And, and if I had told you 200 years ago that the Jewish people would have their own homeland, you would have laughed. If I'd have told you a thousand people were the, when the, 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 the Muslims were fighting the Christians in the homeland and said, what about the Jewish people? And everybody would have laughed. And in 1948, God made this happen. Now, there are people here who have been on a bus before my event on Seal Beach and have heard me talk about this. And I could explain militarily, and I could explain politically, and I can explain a lot of things. But after my event in, on Seal Beach, and after my baptism in Caesarea, I gotta tell you, this is God meddling in the affairs of man. Nothing else would have painted these black lines on this map in the middle of nowhere. There's only one way for this to happen. And I'm gonna bring you back to Ezekiel, where he walks through the valley of the dry bones. Anybody remember the valley of the dry bones? And, 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 and you know, God says to him, Ezekiel, what is this? And he says, dry bones. And God says, okay, you know, talk to them. And the bones rattle together. And he says, speak to them. And the, and the, the sinews come. And the, and, the, and, and the bones stand up, you know. And, and he says, okay, put breath in them. And, you know, and he talks and he puts breath in them. And at the end of the prophecy of the dry bones, God says to Ezekiel, this is the nation of Israel. I have brought them back to their land. And I can hear the question mark in Ezekiel's mind. He says, why? I mean, what, what's this? And God says something very profound. I said that I would, and I did it. That's all the reason he needed. And what I'm trying to say, he said that he would, and he did. And what I'm here to explain, and again, we'll go into a little bit more, is that if God had not kept this promise against all the odds, because again, think about the Germans mass murdering us in, in the Holocaust. Think about the Crusaders wiping us out of our land. Think about the Romans pushing us away. If God had not fulfilled this promise, how do you know he fulfills his promise to you? The state of Israel, the rebirth of the state of Israel, this miracle that you're seeing here means that against all odds, no matter what, no matter how, no matter why, God will keep his promise. And that's what is here today. This is physical, political, military proof that God is faithful. And again, this is weird because I'm standing here and, and let me personalize that because, you know, let me take it off the, the, the um, History Channel. A little bit after my conversion, okay, I'm trying to decide who and what I am. And on, and, you know, big question. I remember having a big debate with God whether I should be Catholic or not. Okay, because, okay, I know there's a God, but, you know, what does that mean? Okay, and, and we're trying to decide. But to make the long story short, I'm rebuilding my, my theology, and then some of you probably heard the story, and I'm trying to realize where I'm going. And um, one of the pastors I was talking to decided, wait a minute, you need to read the Bible and, and, and put it together. You know, and you've heard this from this pulpit many times. Read the Bible, everything will be clear. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm a tour guide and I'm a pastor's kid. I mean, I've read the Bible all of my life and I've seen people take the Bible this way and take the Bible that way. And, and somebody said to me, if you read the Bible with the Holy Spirit, you will have the right answer. And I said, okay, what supermarket do I buy the Holy Spirit in? I mean, where does that happen? <laughs> and he said to me, repent. This is what Paul said very clearly. And I said, okay, I've repented. I mean, I got it, okay. He says, you need to be baptized in water. 
all right. I mean, for a Jew to be baptized, it's a little bit more complex. I don't know if you know, baptism is seen as a way for Christians to take Jews away from Judaism. So I'm trying to figure that out. I'm trying to do that. Make the long story short, I'm trying to decide how and where to get baptized. And I'm standing in Caesarea with the group. How many people have been to Caesarea? How many people have opened up the story of Acts in Acts 10 about Cornelius, who was the first Gentile to be baptized? And I'm reading this from the Bible literally for a group, you know, and, and in the back of my mind, there's my story. And, and the, the passage starts off with, and Cornelius was a God-fearing man. And I'm reading this and I'm saying, wait a minute, I'm a God-fearing man. I am. And then, you know, Cornelius calls Peter, and Peter sits in, in Caesarea, comes to Caesarea, and you know, Cornelius says, okay, I'm a God-fearing man. What do I do now? And what Peter says is, you need to believe in Jesus, repent, and be baptized in water. And all of a sudden, boom. Me and Cornelius are the same rank. We're both military officers. Cornelius is a centurion. You've learned this in Bible school. I'm a major. And I realized that God is saying, this is the time. So in December, two years ago, I was baptized literally in the water of Caesarea, just where Cornelius and his family were baptized. And I received the Holy Spirit. And, and yeah, yeah, I mean, that, that's okay. Gives me goosebumps. But here's the main reason I'm sharing this with you. Let's see if I can pull this off without getting too emotional. On the beach in Caesarea, watching me being baptized by all of my brothers who were all believers, deacons and ministers and everything, okay, was my mom who had prayed for me for 40 years. 40 years she had watched me walk in the wilderness and she stood on that beach and watched me be baptized after being in the wilderness for 40 years. What I'm trying to say is God is faithful on a personal level in my life. And what I'm trying to say is God has been faithful on the national level in the life of my people. It's the same faithfulness from both sides. But I'm going to share one more reason for you to kind of connect to this. I was talking about this today. Okay, one of the reasons I feel it on my life to share this story with as many people is not about what happened to me and not about, you know, I mean, I love officers and we're all wacko. By the way, you're seeing a lot of maps because officers love maps. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> but every one of you have somebody that you've been praying for year after year after year. A loved one, a father, a son, a daughter. And what I'm trying to say is don't give up. Don't give up. Don't quit praying for those you care for. My mom prayed for me 40 years, and it happened. People have been praying for this nation for 2,000 years. And here we are standing today. Now, I'm not saying everything's solved. I'm not saying everything is easy. Don't get me wrong. But what I'm trying to say is keep praying for those you love. And that's just one lesson to put together. Can I have a round of applause for that one? Or an amen or something. I mean, wow. So we become a nation in 1948. We're this tiny little sliver in the middle of nowhere. And listen, okay, there's good parts and the bad parts. We've got a part of Jerusalem in the middle of this. Let me see. The next one will give you a little bit. Okay, but Jerusalem is only half in Israeli hands. The old city of Jerusalem with the Jewish quarter is in Okay, let's, let's go back. Can I go back one? Let's go back, okay? If you look on one side, you see the two areas going into what we call the West Bank. At the end of the War of 1948, what is called the West Bank, it's called the West Bank because it is, anybody know? Jordanian. Let me stress that. It's not Palestinian, okay? There never was a Palestinian state. There never was a Palestinian country. It was Jordanian. And the West Bank uh, was in Jordanian hands and the Gaza Strip. You see the Gaza Strip on the map behind me is in? Anybody know who's holding on to that? The Egyptians. What am I trying to say here? No Palestinian state ever. There was an area called Palestine. 
Okay, the Romans named the geographical areas Palestine. I'm going to say like, I don't know. Uh, the, 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 the example I like to use is the Rocky Mountains. You all know where the Rocky Mountains are? Okay. You know that, you know, there, and there's people who live in the Rocky Mountains, but there never was a country called the nation of Rocky Mountains. There never was a people called the Rocky Mountaineers. Okay. There never was a government of the Rocky Mountains. There never was a Rocky Mountain currency. You guys follow me? There never was a president. Palestine never was a political entity. It was Ottoman Turkish. It was British. It was Crusader. It was all of these things. It was all that. But it never was an, an entity. So in 1948, when Israel becomes a state, everything that you see in green becomes Jewish. Okay? The people living in Gaza are Egyptians. The people living in the West Bank are Jordanians. And that was the situation after 1948. We call it the War of Independence. Our enemies call it the tragedy, the disaster. Because when God moves in a very harsh way, I mean, the, the example my dad used to use is, okay, what did the Egyptian pharaoh think about what happened to his army in the Red Sea? For us, it's a great triumph. It's a miracle. From Egyptian point of view, what is it? A disaster. They called it the disaster. So our enemies called what happened here the disaster. And they've been fighting against that ever since. So what about the Arabs that lived here? At the end of the war of 1948, people who lived in the areas that were called Palestine at that point left and went to other areas. Okay, They went into Jordan, they went into the Gaza Strip, they went up, and that is the Palestinian refugee problem. If you've ever heard about that, that's what created it, that's what made it. That's what happened. Israel did not tell them to leave. And as proof of that, okay, I can prove that everybody who stayed in Israel after the war of 1948, listen to this, became an Israeli citizen just like me. There are Arab citizens in Israel that are Israeli citizens just like everybody else. One-fifth of the population, 20% of the population are Israeli citizens. And I need that to be in, in your hand. Another hand. On the other hand, one of the things that a lot of people don't understand is that after the state of Israel was created, all of the Jews living in Arab nations all around the Middle East, Egypt, Tunisia, Libya, Turkey, Lebanon. Where are all the Jews who lived in all of these Arab nations? There were large Jewish communities. Where are they? They're in Israel. And in 1952, we are probably about a million and a half people. So Israel is created in 1948. Um, there's a whole argument about what happens, but the Arabs could not live with that defeat. Let me see. Let's go back one. And in 1967, the Arabs decide to wipe Israel off the map. I'm going to do this quickly. Uh, the war took six days, which is why we call it Six-Day War. Most of you are awake. Okay, thank you. All right. And six days, the Six-Day War, and in the six days, everything changes. Israel pushes the Jordanians out of the West Bank. You see the kind of ribbed area. We push the, the Egyptians across the Sinai Peninsula, meaning we have the Gaza Strip. And on the last two days of the war, we go up onto the Golan Heights, and we sigh a sigh of relief. I was five years old. And I'm going to say something a lot of people don't really understand because I get to do this from a personal point of view. Because as opposed to all the history that we've been talking about, finally I'm on the ground. I mean, I have a first-hand experience. Day zero of the Six-Day War. Remember when did it six? Day zero of the Six-Day War. Who won the Six-Day War, by the way? Israel, big. I mean, wow. You know, David beat Goliath, you know, and we did albums. Day zero, we did not know we were going to win the war. That's something that a lot of people don't understand. Israel was literally afraid to be wiped off the map. I remember my parents sitting in the living room. My dad says, Zella, what do we do? What happens if we lose the war? And my, my dad says, at least, you know, my mom says, at least we have American passports. They won't kill us. They'll put us on a ship and send us back. Because all the rest of the Jews living there thought they would be killed if the Arabs win. So when we win the Six-Day War, as far as we're concerned, it's a near-death experience. 
It's, it's like you seeing the, the semi-trailer and, and your headlights, and all of a sudden, shoop, it swerves at the last moment. That's the way we felt. We were going to Fork. We were having parades. Everything was amazing. We were celebrating the great wonder, but it changes everything in the Middle East, and you can see it on the map. The Arabs call 1948 the disaster, and they call 1967 the shaming. They were ashamed. How did this tiny Jewish nation manage to hold them off? So in 1973, they tried again. And I'm, I'm going to call it the Yom Kippur War. I don't know if you've heard that term. They attacked from the south. You can see that on the, on the bottom of the map. They attacked from the north. And I'm going to say this. The pride of 1967 went to our heads, and we thought that we were going to be okay. And we almost lost the country. Make the long story short, for two weeks, they pushed in, on, in our direction. Um, we managed to hold them back, and at some point, we pushed them away. By the way, we owe the United States of America, specifically your president at the time. Anybody remember? A guy that had a big balagan afterward. His name was Richard Nixon. Okay? And uh, Richard Nixon actually signed the, the documents that allow the United States to, to supply us with tank rounds and ammunition, uh, artillery rounds that we were running out of. So at the end of the Yom Kippur War in 1973, the borders don't really change. The borders look more or less the same. But our enemies decided that you're not going to take Israel up on the battlefield, and they have changed their tactics. The war for Israel is not being fought on the battlefield anymore. The war for Israel is being fought in two different ways. One is on the media front. Okay? The need to delegitimize our connection to the land. Or, in biblical terms, to break apart that promised connection between God, land, and people. But that's not the end. In 1979, Israel reaches out and says, okay, we want to live in peace with our neighbors. The first of the neighbors that did decide to have peace with us are the Egyptians. And as a result of that, look at all that territory that we gave back to the Egyptians. But what the Egyptians didn't want in a future arrangement is the Gaza Strip. And the Gaza Strip takes, stays in, in Israeli hands. The Palestinians are sitting in Lebanon, using Lebanon as a base to attack Israel. And in 1981, Israel goes in, a lot of tanks go in. See that beautiful tank up there? See the guy whose head is sticking up in the top right there? That's me. Okay. Yeah, a little baby tank commander, 19 years old. They sent me into Lebanon to clear out southern Lebanon from uh, the Palestinian warlords that were attacking Israel on the northern side. Uh, Lebanon became our Vietnam. We went in for the right reasons, stayed too long, and then get stuck in the mud in Lebanon, just like you guys. It took us a long time to get I spent three and a half years inside Lebanon fighting against the Syrians. To make the long story short, every generation has its battle. My dad was in 73. My battle was the 1981 Lebanese war. Um, in the end, we pushed the PLO out of Lebanon, but in the vacuum that's left in southern Lebanon, another organization takes place. We'll see that in a minute. But our enemies are making peace with us. The Jordanians come in 1994. They say, okay, let's reach a peace agreement. We do have a peace agreement with the Jordanians today. And as a result of that, okay, we have a very good cooperation uh, with the Jordanians both on an economic and on a strategic military level. And that is uh, the peace accords. Uh, Itzhak Rabin, who was our prime minister and the king of Jordan, received Nobel Peace Prizes for that. Okay, but that wasn't the end of the story because in the um, power vacuum that was created in southern Lebanon, okay, another organization actually takes up What am I going to say? Okay, we take down one enemy and God brings us another. Okay, uh, the PLO is kicked out of southern Lebanon and in the vacuum, the power vacuum in southern Lebanon, okay, another organization sets up shop called the Hezbollah. I don't know if you've ever heard God's... And they are proxies of the Iranians. In 2006, Israel fights the second Lebanese war to go inside and, and push the Hezbollah out. Uh, that lasts for a while. We have not been in Lebanon since then. And then in 2005, Israel decides enough of the Gaza Strip. You see this tiny little strip of land was used as a base to attack Israel. 
And in 2005, uh, we kind of decided, 2005 I think it was, uh, we decided to move out of the Gaza Strip. We put a border along the edge of the Gaza Strip and we say, if the Gazans fire one rocket at us, we'll wipe Gaza off the land, off the map. To date, I think the number is probably about 25,000 rockets have been fired from Gaza into Israel. Gaza has become a major issue for us. Gaza has become a major issue and there's been rounds of fighting. Uh, they fire rockets. Uh, well, they started off with climbing over the fence and attacking us. Then we put a bigger fence up there. I've actually patrolled the border with Gaza. Then they started tunneling underneath and attacking us. So we put a very sophisticated system underneath to make sure that they can't tunnel underneath us. Then they started firing rockets into us. Israel went a couple of times into Gaza in order to stop the rocket fire. And we put together a very sophisticated system called the Iron Dome. I don't know if anybody's heard about that. In order to, yes. Well, I got to thank you guys for that. Some of the funding has gone uh, to the Iron Dome. Uh, for the Iron Dome has come from the United States. I think Raytheon, Raytheon, Raytheon kind of creates the interceptors. But that has solved that problem. Uh, well, it hasn't solved the problem completely, but again, that is the situation today. The Gaza Strip is kind of and quiet, but again, they haven't forgotten and they haven't forgiven. And uh, again, rounds rise up and, and they get turned down. The Arab Spring comes about. Anybody ever heard of the Arab Spring? And all the Arabs think, wait a minute, if Israel can do it, why can't we do it? So they rebel against their own governments. Uh, the only thing is they don't realize that uh, democracy comes at a price. You have to be willing to be democratic, okay? And what I'm trying to say is, through all of these rounds, I'm standing here today as a representative of my people saying this, God has fulfilled his promise. Not only has he fulfilled his promise, and again, I'm not objective. Let me make this clear. I'm Israeli. I love my country. Okay? Not only has he fulfilled his promise, but he has put a Western-style democracy in the middle of the Middle East. We have democratic institutions with all of the balagan that you all know goes with that. Okay? Uh, we are a prosperous nation. We have one of the highest GDPs. We have economies that are bigger than Spain and Portugal. Okay? I don't know how. I don't know why. We're a tiny little nation in the middle. We are a creative nation second to another. Israel has more patents on its name than any other nation in the world besides the United States. We have more Nobel Prizes than most nations in the world. What I'm trying to say is God is blessing us in our homeland. And why am I not surprised? Because God says, I will bless you. Why am I not surprised? Because we are GKs. We are God's children. We're stiff-necked. We walk away. We don't reply. We don't answer our messages. Okay, I, we get it all. But in the end, we are the people that God uses to prove to each and every one of you on a political level, on a spiritual level, but on a personal level. The fact that I'm standing here today, after 2,000 years, okay, after everything that we've gone through, the fact that I'm standing here today means that you can be sure that God fulfills his promise to his people. And you can be sure, and that's the reason we're here today, that God will fulfill his promise to each and every one of you. God is great. And like we sang today, God is holy. His name is above all names. And I'm here to show you that on maps, on hills, on the ground. God is a faithful God. And I'm here to say, Hallelujah. All these maps, I mean, wow. 
you guys enjoy that? Amazing. Praise the Lord. God is good. All the time. I'm going to invite Christy up to the stage, and we want to pray over the two of you as you guys embark on a new adventure, a new chapter of life, a new chapter of ministry, and we want to bless you guys. But thanks again for that. That was so instructive and so amazing. Um, And just that reminder that God is faithful. And we all need that reminder, right? If he's kept his promises to the Jewish people, he's going to keep his promises to us. I I remember this story about King Louis XVI, and and he was he was uh, he approached this is like 300 years ago, and he walks up to Blaise Pascal, the famous mathematician, and he says, "Prove to me the existence of God." And Blaise Blaise Pascal responds, "Well, Your Majesty, the Jews, the Jews, and it is the existence of God's people and this tiny little nation called Israel that proves there is a God in heaven." keeps his promises. And we're so blessed that you guys came and you blessed us tonight and we want to bless you. So would you guys just extend your hands to the stage and I'm going to just pray over you. Lord, we thank you for David. We thank you for Christy. Lord, the way you have woven their stories together. Lord, the way you make all things new, the way everything you do is good. And that word, it is so true. It rings true. You are faithful. Even when we're faithless, you remain faithful because you can't deny yourself. You've been faithful to the Jewish people. You will be faithful to David and to Christy. And as they step into this new chapter, Lord, we just pray that you would bless them, Lord. We pray that you would go before them, that you would prepare a good path for them to walk in. Lord, we pray that um, you would knit, continue to knit their hearts together, Lord. And we pray that you would bless them in their going out and in their coming in and, and in their relationship, Lord. And as they seek your will together as a married couple, Lord, we just pray your blessings upon them, your favor over them. And we pray that you keep the enemy far away from them, Lord. And we thank you for the nation of Israel. We thank you for your promises that we see fulfilled how a people who didn't have a homeland for 2,000 years was regathered. And on May 14th, 1948, the nation of Israel was reestablished. And, and Lord, we celebrate what you're doing over there, how you're preparing not only the land for the people, but you're preparing the people for your return. And we do pray that you would open the hearts of your people, your chosen people, Lord, and send us, use us to stir up jealousy within them that they would want to know the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Lord, we pray that all of Israel would be saved, as the scriptures say, that the blinders would fall to the ground, that their hearts would be pricked, and they would look on him whom they have pierced, and they would fall in love with you, Jesus. And we just bless the work of your hands in and through this couple who we commission to the work of the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.